Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Legalizing drugs. Is it actually scary or do we just need a better conversation? This is what we're going to talk about. This is Stop and Search on Scroobius Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAST in association with Leak UK. And here we go. Behind your barricades. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades. Where true battles seldom stray. Thanks for joining us again, guys. So this one, what we're going to talk about. Well, Mr. Steve Rolls, a good friend of mine and senior policy analyst at Transform Drug Policy Foundation, he wrote a book and it's a fantastic book. It's honestly probably the most notes I've ever made whilst reading the book. Um, and it's a perfect explainer on what legalising drugs actually means. And it's called Legalising Drugs, The Key to Ending the War. So please do look it up, please do buy it and lend it, lend it to someone. Let them understand this debate. So joining us on this panel, we've got Steve Rose. We've got Ollie Pollard from a documentary series called The Highs and Lows of the Weed Business. And if you're a regular to Stop and Search, you would have heard Ollie because he joined us a few months back. Um, and you can find his documentaries on 4 On Demand. And if you're listening to this on a cast, then the link will be scrolling as we speak. And also joining us is Dr. Judith Yates, who again is just such a magnificent voice. She's a former GP, lives in Birmingham. She's now a member of the IDHDP, which is the International Doctors for a Healthier Drug Policy. Which, how can you argue with that? It just makes complete sense, doesn't it? So let's get on with this. Let's listen to what we've got to say about legalising drugs. Is it the key to end the war? I think we can introduce our panel. So, from the end, we have Ollie. Ollie, would you like to introduce yourself? Oh, uh, my name's Ollie, uh, and I'm a freelance producer and director. And I think I'm here because I made a uh, series, short form series last year um, called The Highs and Lows of the Weed Business, which was about uh, specifically Denver and Colorado and what's going on there. And so we went during 420. Uh, and there's six little films that cover different aspects um, of the industry there. And Steve Rolls, I think you need no introduction, but do it anyway. Uh, I'm Steve Rolls. Uh, I'm a senior policy analyst for Transform Drug Policy Foundation, which is a uh, sort of uh, advocacy and policy analysis think tank based in the UK, 
but working internationally, focused on drug policy and law reform, um, with a, uh, a particular focus on legalising drugs uh, and regulating drugs once they are legalised. Uh, and I'm also author of the smash hit new book, Legalising Drugs, The Key to Ending the War. Which is going to star Johnny Depp. And we have Judith Yates. Can you introduce yourself, Judith? Um, I'm a GP from Birmingham, and I've worked with people who use drugs and alcohol as well as being their GP for <coughs> 35 years. I'm now more or less retired from being a GP, but I'm looking around and thinking things aren't right in the drug policy world at all. And I think a round of applause at that stage to our panel. See, I like doing it that way because it's a little bit infinite monkey cage. I think if we can sort of just ride on the back of what they do, I think we can't go wrong with the podcast world. But I think we need to start with Steve. Uh, why did you write the book, is if I need to ask? Um, well, I mean, I, I've been working for Transform, uh, doing policy work and advocacy for nearly 20 years. And actually, I've, I've written a lot of stuff and the Transform team has produced a lot of stuff, including a series of books on how to legalise and regulate... Um, drugs. So uh, the, the work we do, some of it is critiquing um, the problems of the, war, of the war on drugs. Um, some of it is kind of trying to sort of flesh out a vision of what a post-prohibition world looks like. And some of it is sort of a guide to how to get from one to the other, kind of uh, about how to, how to advocate for changes in policy, how to advocate for better drug policy, and how to advocate specifically for uh, legalisation and regulation. Um, but what this book uh, aims to do is really to distill a lot of um, the other books and reports and briefings and analysis that we've done in, 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 in the past into one kind of uh, neat sort of digestible package. And it's been written, uh, a lot of the stuff that I've certainly done in the past is almost sort of aggressively dull policy stuff, which is only, only interesting if you're a, like a, a, a serious sort of you know, drug policy nerd or, uh, you know, a technocrat, bureaucrat, you know, sort of like what should the font size be on the health warnings on your, on your you know, ca cannabis labelling, that, that, that level of detail. Um, that I don't think, you know, you people are necessarily going to be that interested in unless some of you are very dull. Um, but but what, so so what, what we wanted to do with this book was to distill some of that uh, analysis and thinking and wisdom that we've we've accrued over the last twenty years or so, and put it into one sort of neat package where we kind of tell the story in a bit more of a kind of narrative way. So it starts off with a, with a kind of history of of, of uh, the, the the war on drugs and how it's had, had its roots in uh, sort of racism in the U.S. and exploitation of the drugs issue by various. Um, political and, and financial forces and how, how, it, how, how any kind of sense of public health as the driving sort, force of it got lost many, many generations ago. Um, and, and then it highlights really what all the, the harms are. So all, all the problems that you're all, I, I would guess most of the, by the fact you're here, you, you'll all mostly be familiar with the fact that the war on drugs has been somewhat counterproductive. Um, whether it's, you know, increasing health harms, whether it's fueling crime, whether it's uh, uh, undermining security and development in places like Colombia and Central America and Central Asia and Afghanistan, um, whether it's uh, wasting uh, scarce police resources, um, all of these all of these harms are, 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 I think, have been very well chronicled. But I sort of summarise them in there. But then it goes on to what I think 
we're supposed to be talking about tonight, which is what does... Uh, if, if, if we all agree that war on drugs doesn't work, well, what is the alternative? And even if we say, yes, OK, we all think that we need to sort of end prohibition, then really the debate moves on to what, where I, I think where it should be, which is, well, what does, what does that world look like? You know, um, how, how, what, are the regular, what would the legal regulatory framework be for different types of drugs? Because it wouldn't be the same. You wouldn't regulate cannabis in the same way that you would regulate MDMA or cocaine or heroin or methamphetamine or LSD. They all need some uh, very careful thought about different elements of the market and how you'd regulate them to deal with the different risks um, and social harms and social benefits, potentially, associated um, with their use. So just just basically just breaking that down, I think, is and, and spelling it out for people starts to get people thinking in the right place. Rather than should we or shouldn't we legalise and regulate, it's actually once we've legalised, how do we regulate to deliver the kind of outcomes, the kind of policy outcomes that we all want to see. And we all want to see the same things. We all want to see improved public health, reduced crime, uh, human rights being defended, uh, security and development not being undermined, protection of children and young people. And my, I've got two children here. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, we, we all care about those things for obvious reasons. Uh, the current policy is clearly not delivering it. The question is, what, what kind of regulation is going to deliver those shared goals? And interestingly, those shared goals are shared between everybody, whether they're even prohibitionists and drug warriors. Actually, they don't, no one wants more crime or, more, you know, ill health or children to be put in jeopardy or, you know, human rights to be undermined. Everyone wants that. The question is, how do we deliver it? And once we agree that the war on drugs isn't the way, the question is, how do we, how do, we do it? What's the best regulation model? So the book doesn't go into enormous detail on that, but it at least outlines the structure of, you know, you know, the products themselves, the vendors. How do you license and regulate the vendors? How do you license and regulate the outlets? How do, who, who, who has access to that market? How do you do age controls? All these sorts of questions are in many ways obvious and familiar in terms of legal products that we're all used to. And I've got, some, I've got, a, I've got a sticky bun here. Uh, very bad for you. Uh, I've got a beer here, very, also very bad for you. But they are regulated, the beer more than the sticky bun, um, in, up as appropriate to their relative risk. And it's the same, we need to do the same thing with, with drugs. So cannabis would probably be regulated more like uh, alcohol and tobacco or like the coffee shops in the Netherlands. Uh, things like MDMA, sort of party drugs and stimulants that people use in the nighttime economy would probably be available under some sort of licensed retail, perhaps from pharmacies, a kind of pharmacy model with a trained and licensed gatekeeper to accessing the market. And then more dangerous drugs, you know, injectable drugs and some of the more dangerous stimulants might only be available through a kind of uh, medical model like we have with um, uh, methadone and um, prescribed heroin, which already already happens in this UK. So in the UK, so heroin is actually already legally supplied to dependent drug users in the UK. So the idea of oh, let's legalise heroin, we well, don't need to. It's already legal for that. So, um, and a lot of the the um, the things that are proposed in here and that have been proposed by Transform and our work historically are based on existing models. So. Prescription models of heroin, that's what we advocate. We just think it should be more available. Um, legal cannabis, obviously lots of places all around the world are already doing that in California and in Uruguay and Canada um, and in the Netherlands and all over the place in Jamaica. Um, so we're already getting a, 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 lot of, a lot of experience and evidence about how to do that properly or how to do it not so well. And there are mistakes being made and, you know, policy has to evolve based on evidence. 
Um, in a way, the place we've got least evidence, I think, is probably the stimulants in the middle. There aren't really very many good examples of legally regulated stimulants. So that would be a more experimental uh, model. But one of the other things that we say is that we need to move forward cautiously um, in, in, in small increments, in a, in a phased manner, and see what works. And if it's not working, be willing to take a step back, and, but also to be flexible and but, but bold as we, as we move forward, but always based on evidence of what delivers those shared common goals. So the last bit of the book is then looking at some of these examples. So I look at Colorado, we look at Uruguay, um, we, it's only me wrote it, um, uh, Switzerland and, the, and heroin prescribing. Um, I say it, but it is we actually, because there were loads and loads of people, uh, my friends and colleagues um, from Transform and, and beyond, uh, some of whom are here. Um, have helped and fed into it and provided feedback and uh, evidence and, 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 and suggestions and guidance on, on the contents of the book. So it's actually a collective effort. And then the, and then the final chapter is looking at um, a bit more of the political, the political analysis. How do we make the case? So it's more of a kind of almost like an advocacy guide, how to talk about it, how to use human narratives to engage the public with difficult policy uh, issues. Um, how to use evidence, but not to rely too much on evidence, because if people have got a sort of emotional commitment to a particular policy position, evidence doesn't really help change. You have to, you have to engage them where they are. Look at what, what values uh, do they care about? What, what, what's really going to reach them at an emotional level? And you have to give, paint a picture and, and give, provide a vision of the future and have a, reg, a, a world where drugs are legally regulated and available that... Um, they will buy into and be willing to get behind because policy is only really going to change when the public um, make it worth politicians' while. Unfortunately, there are a few politicians who are going to show leadership on this, a very few, people like Mojica in Uruguay. Um, but for the most part, politicians are power-hungry and cynical and, and, they will and they will only change when the political you know, uh, cost-benefit analysis is in their favour. And that basically means public opinion coming round. That's what's happened in America. That's what's happened in Canada with, with cannabis. Um, and I think probably in the UK and, and the rest of the world, you have to win over the public first um, and, and find champions in, in the political domain who will then pick up the baton and take it forward. But yeah, that's what the book's about. Um, I, I hope it's a reasonably uh, approachable, readable uh, version of that story, but um, you'll be the judge of that. I think that deserves a round of applause on that alone. I think one of the things that struck me, Judith, when I was reading it, because I know you've read it as well, is that it's very much a book that you can lend. It's not just the one that you read yourself. You make sure that you've got to digest this and give it to someone else that can convince them of reform. And I know from a position of a doctor, it's, it's quite a, an issue that you're obviously really, really passionate about. Would you say as well that what Steve said, that the delivery of information is just as important as the information itself. Yeah, it's clearly a coffee table book to leave on there. <laughs> um, yeah, drug policy based on evidence. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah. Um, I'm one of 1,428. I just looked it up at the moment. Doctors, medical doctors from more than 100 countries around the world asking for... We're part of something called International Doctors for Healthier Drug Policies. And we're looking at the unintended consequences of the so-called war on drugs and our patients and my, I suppose my standpoint, starting point as a doctor was, was the harm that was being done to my individual patients and then looking around the world at the harm that's being done to all around the world. And when I retired from being a GP and, and, and became a bit more involved in this and looking at these policies, I started 
going to the United Nations, which anybody can find a way to do if you're interested. And I went to Vienna and listened to these government, governmental people talking about policies which had absolutely no basis in evidence and absolutely no basis in helping my patients to a better and healthier life, and quite the opposite. And one of the things which shocked me, um, which is, is not... Uh, is, is mentioned, it is definitely mentioned in Steve's book, um, but I didn't even, I wasn't aware of. I was a GP in Birmingham, in England, in the UK. I'd got access to all the medicines I needed. I could prescribe methadone for people who needed it or, or, or morphine for terminal care for people who needed it. And until I went to Vienna and the people at the United Nations explained it to me, I didn't know that one of the unintended consequences is that nine, uh, over 90% of the world's painkillers, morphine-based painkillers, are used by 17% of the population, which is Europe, America and Australia. I wasn't aware of that. And the UN themselves say that this is wrong, this is not intended. Five, over 5 billion, apparently we have 7 billion people in the world, I had to look that up. Um, 5.5 billion people have little or no access to opiate painkillers for terminal care. I didn't know that until four years ago. But since I realised that, I'm shocked. And the reason is not because it's against the UN conventions. The reason is because the policy has been look, rolled out in such a cack-handed way, if you like, relying, looking only at criminalising people who use drugs and not concentrating on what was written down in the original conventions, which is getting proper access to medicines for those who need them. And we all have human rights. To, to access to medicines. Um, and there are people from the hospice movement going around the world now trying to put this right. But the reason this had happened, it was, had to be explained to me, because I said, is that right? That can't be right. The reason it's happened is because the regulations have been so strict, have been so difficult, that low-income low countries haven't been able to afford to put into place all the border controls and all the legal things and train the doctors and the nurses how to tick these boxes, which in the UK we have the privilege to be, to be able to do. So the sooner we can change these laws which underpin this and, and, and start to move forward with policies which actually help the human race rather than harming most of the human race, the happier I will be as a doctor. such a powerful voice isn't it the doctors that are there for a healthier drug policy it's, it's really difficult to argue with that how at what point was there a light bulb moment for you in it was it within your work or was it when you stepped outside it well it was it was within my work as i went along um i've um i've read with interest neil wood's book which is also very much worth a read actually um describing the work of the undercover police who, who, who my patients had told me about <laughs> in some detail over the years. And some of my patients in the inner city Birmingham have got tangled up with the police trying to, trying to do what we asked them to do at the time, which is, you know, policing the use of drugs and trying to catch people who are using as well as people who are... Oh, and my patients who are the most vulnerable, the most... Uh, unsuccessful of people in, in Birmingham who, who, who were using drugs in the, in the very much in the inner city and on the streets and the streets homeless um, end up being, again, unintended victims, really, of, of, of this so-called war on drugs. And they would end up getting arrested in order for the police to be able to ask them where they got their drugs from, in order to be able to look for the big, nasty, violent people higher up. But in the process, I'd been working with this patient 
you know, maybe for some years. Um, and I got them into a nice hostel and they were on the housing ladder waiting for their flat. And then they'd disappear off into prison on remand. They might not get a custodial sentence because they're only little tiny people. Who cares what happens to them? But I cared as their GP. I'd known their parents. I knew their cousins. I knew their aunts. And, uh, and, and when, by the time they came out after the court case three months later, they'd fallen off the housing ladder. All these little people getting damaged by... Oh, for no good reason, for no actual positive reason that I could understand. So that's what made me think things weren't right. And it is, it's all those little... Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's those little things that add up to the bigger picture. And there's a, there's a thing in, in Steve's book that says that people in Southeast Asia are still getting executed fundamentally for oh, yeah. a, a proportional amount of cannabis, which you can now legally buy in Colorado. Mm. So that's how diverse our, our, and perverse our drug policies become internationally. And I think Ollie's a good one to speak about what a legal system now looks like, because in the highs and lows of the weed business, which you can find on Channel 4 On Demand, which absolutely go and find it. It's, uh, I think, six... Is it six short six, documentary? Yeah. Six, um, yeah. The highs and lows of the weed business. It's on Channel 4 Weed. Oh, weed. <laughs> weed. Yeah, he also... <laughs> it's all about bread. It's well. <laughs> just about bread, yeah. <laughs> and absolutely gluten-free. And can I just say for the listening audience, Steve Rolls is still eating his sticky bun, which is <laughs> the first for this podcast. Um, so, Ollie, I mean, how did you get to the point where you was interested in the weed business, both functioning and you really went down and, and saw every aspect of what was going on from both the what's now happening in legal money moving yeah, down all the way down to consumption? Um, I, yeah, I guess... Uh, Steve will know more about this, but there are different ways to run, you know, a system of legalisation. And my insight is not probably as good as, as, as the other panel members or you, Josh. But so my understanding is just mainly of Colorado, I guess, in that US model. Um, and I guess what interested me from, like, just as a producer and somebody who makes shows and internet stuff is that... I found this money thing really fascinating, which is not a model I don't think we have in the UK. We, we, we couldn't really have. In that um, drugs in the US are very different to how they're, you know, policed or uh, what, what the laws are here is that um, federally it's still illegal to buy weed, even though as a state, if you lived in Colorado or Washington State or now California, you could buy weed... Um, under state law, but under federal law, still illegal. So if you um, say you went from Colorado to another state that wasn't legal, you would be breaking the law, even though you legally bought something that's totally legal in another state, it would be um, transporting kind of illegal goods over the border. And equally, this is why there's so much money in Colorado. 2016, they made, they made 1.3 billion in, in cannabis sales. Um, but uh, because it's still federally legal, it's a lot of cash because nobody wants to pay with plastic. Um, so in a lot of the dispensaries we went to, um, there's cash machines. Um, so they'll say, have you got any money? And people from out of state will try and pay on a card, not knowing that really they don't want to do that. Um, so that was the first thing I read was this article about how this it's just a really cash-rich city. And I think that's what got me interested in it because I just thought that was a kind of fascinating subject. And then after that, that opened me up to all the other stuff. So 
one of those was the security industry. So there's a really weird dichotomy in them in Colorado is that there's security firms now that do just that. They just move weed and cash around the city. So from a dispensary to a bank. Um, and that the company we, we kind of hung out with for a while and we, we went on a, a ride along, their, their words, not mine, but um, a ride along in their armoured truck um, that was owned and run by an ex-policeman. And pretty much all his staff were either ex-military or ex-police. So it was a really odd, you know, odd situation there that you had policemen who were arresting a few years ago, literally only a few years ago, the very same people for carrying a bit of weed and you know, it's, a bigger, it's a bigger conversation to have about the prison system in America, but, you know, there's millions of, almost, I would say, of, um, you know, usually African-American men in prison for a tiny bit of weed, um, which is just for me, feels wrong. We talked about human rights earlier. That would be one of them. You know, it just seems so odd. Um, but anyway, but that city is, that city is changing. And that, for, for, for me, for an outsider, and not a smoker of weed, it wasn't why I went. Um, <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't hard to get high. I mean, there's, there's, there's certain rules they have. And, and, and just before we started, Steve was saying that he didn't really advocate that model in Colorado. But... One of, the, one of the things they do have is that you can't uh, smoke in public. So you can't smoke, you just can't smoke light up in the street with a joint or whatever. Not that actually a lot of people smoke joints, but um, you can smoke in your own home. That has problems as well. If you rent, people can get evicted quite easily. So they have weed buses. So when we were there, it was uh, 420, which I'm sure most of you will know about. And so that weekend, there's a load of stuff going on. We went to this little kind of down and out bit of town and it was just kind of fun little kind of pop-up festival and outside this guy this real character had this bus essentially his rv classed in america as only the americans can as a home so as soon as you stepped on the bus and you had a bit of resin or you smoked a joint or you did whatever you wanted to do you were totally legally smoking so if you stepped off that bus and the police came past and you were smoking a joint you'd get arrested but um that's how they got around it so it wasn't hard to get high if you sat on the bus for half an hour but um but no so my yeah my my my, my knowledge is just of colorado i guess and, and it's working i mean i can't I guess I came away from it because I came with quite an open mind in that I'm not a smoker. I'm not probably like a lot of you. I don't, I didn't know an awful lot. I'm not going to claim I did. And that was part of the reason for doing it. Um, and I came away, I guess, with quite a clear opinion of what I think about drug policy, specifically about weed, I think. Um, and um, and I, I do think we need to change. And I, I find it kind of embarrassing uh, that somebody, you know, in this country, if Tim Farron brings up the idea of maybe looking at legalising weed, he's kind of laughed at a little bit by some political establishments. And I think, I just think it's really childish. I think we need to have an adult, open, honest debate about what the pros and cons are. And, that, and that's where um, Steve makes the point in the book of, and it's always a theme of this podcast, of this is a social movement, is it going to come from the top down or is it going to go from the bottom up? Um, and I think the consensus, in, um, Johan was here last month, he was very much making the case, wasn't he, Neil, that it is a social-led approach that is going to eventually pop the Westminster bubble. And I think you make that point as well, Steve, is that 
there has been certain examples and, and certainly the state-by-state state examples in America, especially Colorado, have been socially led and have gone against policymakers' wishes. Do you think that that is... Has that got any real benefit or, or non-benefit within the discussion? I mean, the, the, the way that reform happens uh, does, does influence the nature of the, the, the outcome. So if you look at the US, for example, with the cannabis reforms, they are all uh, ballot initiative-led reforms. Uh, and th- that, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it does mean that the, the actual ba- the, the, the model laws, or in, in Colorado's case, I think it's Colorado, that they actually it was a constitutional reform, wasn't it? They actually redrafted the constitution. It was um, an amendment, I think. Was it? An, well, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, exactly the same thing. But, 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 the, yeah. the, so, so, but the, the, the key thing is that the people designing those policies that were then voted on were essentially activists, um, often working with um, the industry. Um, now, again, not necessarily a bad thing, but it may mean that the, the type of model that you get will, will, will uh, prioritise um, the interests of uh, activists and industry over, say, the interests of, say, public health or, um, uh, you know, parents and, and child welfare. Now, I'm not saying that those things were, were, were abandoned, and they certainly haven't been, but there is clearly, an, there's an obvious tension when we get to this discussion about regulation. There's an obvious tension between the interests of business and, and profit-making ma- commercial entities and the interests of uh, public health institutions. Um, in, in the businesses want to make, they're, they're interested in making money, and that generally involves increasing the amount of stuff they sell, which means more drug consumption, whether it's weed or alcohol or tobacco or, or some other drugs in the future. Whereas public health people, um, their interest will be in, in, in uh, moderating use or, or reducing use, particularly um, harmful use. And there's a tension there. Um, and so if it, it, so the, the, depending on which of those two groups or where the balance lies in, in terms of driving the policy forward will tend to dictate the outcome. So if you look at the, 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 the models in the US, by no means awful, not necessarily how I would do it, but and, and the outcomes in Colorado, for example, which is the most well-developed one, are actually pretty good. You know, arrests have gone down by about 85%. Brilliant. Um, yeah, youth use doesn't seem to have uh, increased. Uh, there hasn't been some kind of spike in drug-related driving incidents. Um, there have been some not brilliant outcomes. There's been more A&E admissions. Uh, there's been some other things that haven't been positive, but may actually reflect... A greater in, in terms of surveys may actually reflect a greater openness for people to admit. So you're, you're much more likely to go to A and E if your kid eats some uh, a hash brownie or something. Now it's legal than beforehand. So it may be that the data is a bit skewed anyway. But the outcomes of Colorado are pretty good. But if you look at what happened in Canada um, or Uruguay, where it was a legislatively led process, it's much more public health focused. So in Canada and Uruguay, you're going to have non-branded products and you're going to have a total advertising ban, um, and, and uh, there will be commercial players in the market, but there won't be those kind of familiar commercial, uh, at the availability and supply end, you won't have that kind of visible branding, promotional um, dimension of a commercial market. Um, and I think that's because of a leg- it's a legislatively-led led product uh, process. So one of the things I'd like to see is for, the, is, is for it not to be in the US anymore ballot initiatives. I want, I want to see the states... And ultimately, the federal government picking up the baton and, and coming up with a proper public health-led policy. Because otherwise, you do leave it. I mean, and I don't know whether you, you heard about what happened in Ohio, 
but um, Ohio had a, a ballot initiative to legalize cannabis and it failed. But it was a it was a it was a total disaster. So what happened was, ten people um, wrote a ballot initiative to legalize cannabis and got it got got it on the vote. Managed to get enough signups to get it a vote on it, and it, it was a constitutional amendment that added that awarded a monopoly on the sale of cannabis to ten people. Guess which ten it was? It was them. And it was you're just looking at that going. That's completely outrageous. That is not what we signed up for. I haven't campaigned for all these years to let 10... Um, get a, be, award themselves a monopoly on, on, on the market. It was absolutely outrageous. And luckily, I, I hate... You know, so I, got, I found myself in the rare position of actually wanting a legalisation measure to fail because it was such a bad sort of role model for the rest of the, the country and the world that you would have this awful setup. Um, luckily, it failed, and, and uh, I mean, actually, they have a reasonable decrim law in Ohio anyway, so it's not a total disaster. And probably a better ballot initiative will now be put forward, you know, in, in a couple of years, and I've no doubt it will pass. But there, there, you know, there are risks there, and we can get it wrong. So regulation can be done badly. I mean, we've seen from the mistakes of alcohol and tobacco in the past just how wrong it can go. Um, and so, we, whilst we have a, 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 a an opportunity here we also have a great responsibility to make sure that this time um, that we get it right because you know if, if we mess it up there will be costs you know if you do legalization regulation badly there can be costs and and you know but we should we know what or we know what those problems are and we should as responsible policymakers be able to, to, to sort of see them coming and mitigate against them by doing it sensibly and doing it right. But that tends to mean having the public health people in charge and not the commercial entities. I can hand over to Judith now. Um, public health people in charge, well, yes. <laughs> but I think it has to come from both, both ends. Um, one of the things that I've been involved with trying to do is, we, we, in Birmingham we have a lot of people in street injectors injecting drugs on the street because we give them... The syringes and needles have been doing that for 20 or 30 years so that people don't get HIV, and that's quite right. But we know that they've got nowhere safe or hygienic to inject, so they have to go around the back of the car park. So they come into the pharmacy every day, get their needles and syringes. Bye-bye, off you go around the back of the car park, under the canal, inject your drugs, and we'll see you tomorrow. Shockingly le- stupid um, outcome from, from, from silly policy um, because of the health harms that come from injecting drugs where people can't see you in, in dark, dark and unhygienic places. So I've been trying to persuade people that it would be very sensible to allow us to have a drug consumption room in Birmingham where people can just come inside, wash their hands, have the drugs and, and, and then talk to somebody about what help they might need on the way out if they'd like some help. And if not, they can come back tomorrow and try again. Um, and three years ago, three, but the, and what I'm trying to say, I think, is that the conversation is changing very rapidly. And that's, it's, it is a very strange and exciting time because things are moving, although frustratingly slowly at times. Um, we, I, I spoke to public health in Birmingham and they asked the Home Office, well, could we do this? And the Home Office said, absolutely no, it is against all these laws, it is against all the, and it's outside of the United Nations conventions and international law. And I've got an email from the Home Office which was sent to Birmingham to say, tell Dr Yates that we can't do this. Um, and now, this year and last year, the International Narcotics Control Board and the United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime 
have, have, have said in, and, and put in writing that drug consumption rooms, safe places where people can come inside to use their drugs, can be within the United Na Nations conventions if they're part of a properly balanced drug treatment service. Well, that's what I was saying all along. So here we are four years later, and I'm now asking again. And of course, we have, as you probably know, Glasgow and Dublin and, and, and Swansea. Uh, the Welsh Government are, are helping Swansea to look at this. And it, it's kind of sensible, oh, pragmatic approach. But the, the whole criminalisation debate, the whole war on drugs thing, has meant that the people who use drugs are treated as if they're worthless and as if they're criminals and that's why we need to change a whole lot but sorry I think I'm saying we need to change it from the bottom up as well as from the top down um, because the top down they do nothing really they kind of pass it off so you need both hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah, if I can just jump in, unless you've got uh, something. It, it certainly seems that the UK um, at the moment, that, that that is very much the pattern. That with the central government, um, I mean, obviously there's an election coming up. But I don't know, uh, actually, I don't know when this is being broadcast. Maybe, maybe it's already happened, but the... Uh, the, the the, the government Greens won. The, the, yeah, right. Yay, Greens! Um, <laughs> uh, the, 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 the current government, the current Conservative government and previous coalition and, and Tory governments have not um, been showing any great interest in, in, in drug law reform discussions. In fact, they've uh, deliberately been trying to shut them down. Um, and so what you have seen happen is that uh, the, the reforms and innovations have been happening at a, at a local level. So we are seeing sort of progressive um, change, but it's the the it feels like the the government is kind of um, letting the local authorities and the local police and the local public health groups uh, and local NGOs assume the political risk. So that the, the central government doesn't have to deal with it. So they assume the political risk. They innovate. Uh, they get some credit, but eventually, and, and then eventually, it kind of percolates up to central government. And we're seeing that all, all over the place. So there's been uh, so drug testing at festivals, for example. Um, two, two police authorities have authorised that. Now that's beginning to go national this year. We've seen two local authorities, two local police authorities, 
have implemented effective uh, drug decriminalisation for possession. Uh, I mean, it's obviously, it depends where you live. You, you know, you might be unlucky and not live in one of those places. Um, and we're seeing, as you mentioned, supervised injection facilities now being proposed in Glasgow. One's opening in Dublin. I know that's not the UK, but it's quite near. Um, and they're being mooted all over the place. Again, again Bright, uh, Brighton and Swansea and, um, and North Wales and all over the place. Um, and, uh, and, and heroin prescribing, again, although that is legal and does happen on a small scale, it's being seriously proposed on, on a, a, for a larger scale rollout, but again at a local level. So we are seeing change, um, uh, why bigger changes being driven by local experimentation. And I think the same is true actually with cannabis reform. So we're seeing little countries like Uruguay um, and Jamaica and a few states in America are driving policy forward rather than the US federal government, and certainly not the UN. But eventually, when enough countries have legalised and regulated cannabis and it's shown to be a good thing, eventually the UN will have to realign its position and start issuing best practice guidance in the same way they do with alcohol and tobacco. And I think the delivery of information is something that you, you make a point of in the book, Steve, is it's a way of good having these discussions, but how do we get them across to the layman on the street that just doesn't care? And I think in Colorado is a good example of how the activists there took the, took the reins and, and put the pressure on the policymakers. I mean, I think you saw that firsthand, didn't you, Ollie? Uh, yeah, yeah. I was, and to Steve's point, I, I, you can kind of... There's going to be faults in every way they, they do it, but kind of to Steve's point, it, it did take people at a local level to make change, and that's bad because you think that, as you say, federal governments can just wait, see if it works, see if it doesn't work, tell everybody it didn't work, wait if it didn't work, and celebrate if it did, because they're making, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in tax. Um, and there's a positiveness to that as well. In Colorado, I think $40 million um, last year went to schools, just the building of schools. That's earmarked, that doesn't go anywhere else, a, a certain amount has to go. And that's a really positive thing. We could do with that. I mean, let's be honest. We, we yeah, we could do with that. And um, but um, just yeah, to, to, again, kind of picking up something Steve was saying before. I think um, from my experience, and maybe it's slightly anecdotal, um, but the people that want it, to, obviously, the people that want it to work the most are the people that are involved in that policy. And that, and we met a lot of people from businesses. Fair enough, they are making money, but none of them particularly greedily. Um, and then there were policymakers, people that work on Capitol Hill and, and, and such. And they all knew or they all know the kind of tightrope they're walking on, um, that any of this stuff could get kind of either voted out if something really awful happened, um, which is unlikely, we probably would weed, but... It, or if a government changes, and a, a lot of people in America will be slightly fearing Trump, I should imagine, because he isn't quite as forward-thinking um, as others. Uh, so it might be that he just decides that you know I, I you know I don't like it, and and, and will make states somehow um, you know uh, change. I don't think he could because he likes money too much. So I think that would be a bit of a struggle. But um, no, I think the people that don't want it to fail are the people working in it, and I think there's a slight misconception, you know, that there is a lot of people making a lot of money. Fair enough, that's the way of the world. That will happen. There'll be people making money, you know, if it was just for medical use, there'll be some pharmaceutical. And But that was one of the points I got from everybody, from across the board that we spoke to, was that actually the great fear was that 
there's almost a cottage industry feel about Colorado. And I, Steve's right, you know, it's packaging and branding, and that feels like you're selling something as kind of a commodity and for profit, which you are. But they're the people that don't want it, don't want it to get thrown away. So they're actually the proactive ones saying, all right, we do have a problem with driving under the influence. Um, so one of, one of the episodes is, is, a, is about um, a website called The Pot Guide, which initially started in Colorado, and as more states legalised it, it kind of spread its net, as it were, and covers a lot. So you can find out where to stay that's pot-friendly. You can go find out what the best strains might be that you can buy in Denver that month or whatever it might be. Um, but they're, they're really proactive about this driving thing, just to the health and safety bit of it, is that there is no real test. I mean, there is a test, but it isn't, doesn't really work because how weed affects different people in different ways, there isn't really a measure as there would be with a breathalyzer. But they're the first people to bring that up because if they can kind of fight that argument before it comes or at least be informed in that argument, then they can deal with it rather than it all comes at once and it's like this person, you know, we have X amount of accidents and whatever. Um, so, yeah, in that sense, I think that they are the best people. I do agree that health um, kind of professionals and public um, health professionals should be involved, but I think not everybody's out to get money out of it as much as they might be making some money out of it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, 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 I absolutely agree with that. I think there's... One of the interesting things I think about Colorado, and I don't know whether you, you, this is something you clocked, is that actually two of the key institutions of capitalism, as it were, are patent law and banking, both of which, given the strange, unique nature of Colorado being legal in, a, in, a, in the context of federal prohibition, are actually absent. So there's no patenting uh, allowed because that's run at a federal level, and there's no banking because you can't bank cannabis money because it's illegal federally and the banks are federally regulated. So actually, you, you, weirdly, although it is quite a commercial model, you do actually have, there's an absence of some of the, uh, some of the, these two key institutions Trappings of, of, of capitalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, no, that's, that's totally right. You can, in a big metal box under their bed. Uh, yeah. Well, well, you can put it in a safe and, uh, and you can take it to the bank. I mean, one story we heard was that, um, there's a there's a company in Colorado called Medicine Man who actually are trying to move into that Jamaican market. Interestingly enough, when we were there, but um, they um, they they were t- he was telling me Andy Williams who runs that was telling me stories that he knew companies would come to tax day and they would drive to the bank themselves with a friend with bags of money and that's how they pay their taxes. So none of it was done digitally at all. So you could still pay because they still want the money. That's the that's the truth of it. The government still want your taxes, so they're not going to. They're probably not going to kind of pull you up on it in the end. But um, that's how most people would do it. Yeah. And now and now lots of those businesses that are security businesses have had to expand and include like bank grade safes in their facilities just to house the money that, from their clients. There's always been people making big money and my patients used to have huge safes in something in their flat. I used to go and visit people in sort of crack houses with steel doors and large safes in the back and those people weren't paying taxes. So at least now they're paying taxes. Well, yeah, that's true. They are, you know, so there are some positives. I do agree it probably needs looking at, but like, yeah, I guess my bigger point is that those people involved, a lot of the people I met anyway, were, were at the forefront of, of recognising those problems, recognising those changes. And until it is 
federally illegal there will there will be this issue in america so it won't be the greatest model because it's never going to happen until they make it federally illegal throughout but i mean there there are other options uh there are other types of market that you can consider and they they do there are there are for example um state monopolies in certain countries for alcohol russia used to have an alcohol state monopoly china has a, a monopoly on tobacco products um the, the the cannabis regulation model in uruguay um that i actually did a little bit of work on a few years ago uh, it is almost a state monopoly but this the government doesn't produce and it's actually quite an interesting one because even though the government doesn't produce the cannabis itself commercial companies do produce the cannabis so there are still commercial companies involved in the market and there are still people making money um the government is the sole buyer and the government dictates what they what they grow uh and the government is then the sole supplier for sales from pharmacies um and there's no market there's no branding and no um no advertising but this stuff will be available um but, but so there there are alternative models and and other people have proposed things like having uh not for profit corporations or social enterprises would be the or, or what are they called uh, for benefit corporations where you 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 have a a commercial entity but it's working for the community providing jobs or providing community sort of funding for projects and so on. Um so there are other options and it's interesting how how the constraints legal constraints can drive innovation. So in Spain for example, there's I think nearly 700 cannabis social clubs. Now cannabis isn't legal in Spain, but there are about 700 of these cannabis social clubs now where you have uh people have basically taken advantage of their decrim law which allows individuals to grow a certain number of plants for their own personal use. And what they've done is they've pooled together um and uh 3 or 400 100 people say pull their allowance of two plants and they grant that allowance to one person who goes and grows 200 plants and then supplies the cannabis social club um on a non not for profit basis and now there's hundreds of these clubs all over the country now sort of operating in a kind of weird legal gray area um and and there are problems with it they're not properly regulated and so on but the 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 interesting thing is that you've you it's developed a sort of community non-profit ethos for production and supply and use which is actually i think rather sort of quite nice it kind of seems to work quite well and it you know it there's no incentive to you know lure young people into evil weed use or um there's no incentive to increase consumption and and there's a sort of supportive community of people who would keep an eye out for you if your use was maybe becoming problematic or able to give you advice on safer use and so on and so on but it, crucially it's a non-profit model of production supply that actually exists and so you can go and look at it and see how it works and learn from it and I don't think we other places are going to necessarily copy it although Uruguay did Uruguay has built in a cannabis social club facility within its uh, legal regulatory model um but you can learn from the fact that other ways of doing it as opposed to uh you know having weed brands sponsor football teams and so on there are other things you can do and people you know people laugh when you say that oh look if we had legal coke we'd have like the cocaine premiership football ha ha um and but actually we, we you know we have cider brands sponsoring the the UK Olympic team that, that's not necessarily good no that's it's obviously it's really bad um and we and it was only you know up until very recently we had we had alcohol sponsoring Formula 1. Yeah. Formula 1, high speed yeah, no. driving with crashes by booze brands. It's extraordinary and and uh, you know but that so so that kind of thing. That's we, why we, we need more strict regulation than that. Right. So those are the kinds of 
obvious problems that as responsible policymakers as we move forward we, we, ne- we would need to make sure we avoid in the future yeah I'd agree with that and I think but I think that's an easy one yeah I, 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 that's just an easy one it's been pretty easy with cigarettes you know it took about 30 years yeah because people were fighting and not because it was a hard thing to do it's easy to take a sticker off a sports car yeah no and I, mean, I, and I think that's that, that, that would be my point about we, you can see Edibles is a big com- is a big conversation, right? And that and I do get that that's a brand and that's sponsored by every rapper under the sun in the states. Do you know what I mean? So everybody's little Wayne's got a gummy bear range and whatever. And that I don't think is I don't think is great. Um, do I think it's wrong that they have a name or a brand name? No, but I, I don't think yeah they should be sponsoring a, a team. Just as I don't think football um, football teams in the UK should be sponsored by drinks companies or cigarette companies, and they obviously aren't by cigarette companies. And so yeah, th- I, but I think that's an easy one. That's a really easy one to say. Look, that's just not going to happen from the get go. That's, that's the beauty of regulation. You can do that, and you can't do it under current circumstances. Yes, but the, the, see the, it, and and, and we, the, the battle is to as large extent in the UK been won with tobacco so you now have plain packaging, there's no advertising it's behind a screen, it's in a horrible bile green package with a picture of a cancerous lung on it Um, but you can still buy as much tobacco as you want and smoke as much as you want Um, but you can't do it in in, uh, public public buildings anymore Um, and and, and as a result of that, no one's been criminalised, anyone can buy as much tobacco as they want, but use has actually gone down by about half through effective regulation and investment in public health education so you can do it but it has taken about 20 or 30 years because we were fighting at every stage against a, a sort of rampaging, um, rapacious tobacco industry who, who spent millions and millions on lobbyists. Now, the thing with, the, with cannabis is we're starting from a blank slate. We can, we can, we can build the, the yeah. right model from the start and we don't have to worry about um, the, you know, big, big tobacco or big alcohol or big pharma or any other, any other big organize what are they call corporations big, big stuff um, yeah no that that's that, that, yeah i'd 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 agree with that um, also the culture of how we get there the conversation at the moment we're quite polarized everything involving drug policy is polarization of these drugs are bad they're going to kill you versus you know what they project our image on this side of regulation and reform how do we get to that position where we can ameliorate the debate and then we can realise that we're all on the same page? We all yeah. want, you know, you've got your children, as you said, Steve, you want to protect them. How do we get to that point where we have that communication? I, I, yeah, I, I, I absolutely right. We, we have to work at how to get from where we are today to where I would like to be, which is Steve Rolls' picture of a properly regulated system where we know the strength and we know the ingredients and it's all labelled properly and we know exactly what people are taking and anybody who gets into difficulties can come and see me as a doctor and I can help. Same as we do with alcohol and same as we do with, with, with cigarettes, only better, doing it better. I completely agree. But the, the, the first harm that, that I was moving in that direction, that I would love the UK, which almost could happen overnight as Portugal did, you know, whenever it was, 15, 16, however many years ago, it keeps counting, doesn't it, uh, to, to, to decriminalise all drug use. Yeah, personal use. And that, that to my mind, um, some drugs and tobacco and alcohol are worse than, than cannabis, obviously, but some drugs do do some harm, certainly to some people. Um, but criminalising my patients never made them, or only ever added harm to whatever that harm was already happening to them and, and just added a layer of harm which, which they could never recover from because they got a criminal record forever then. Um, and I would, I would love to see us uh, 
overnight decide to decriminalise in the Portuguese model um, and then follow on gradually, you know, with the, with the cannabis first perhaps and then move gradually towards the other, the other drugs as we work out how to do it and do it safely and people stop being so frightened because it isn't frightening. Actually, what we've got now is frightening and is dangerous and, and what we would be moving towards would be much safer. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I, it does feel to me that even in the UK, the idea of decriminalising personal possession and use is, is within reach, even with uh, the, 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 our successive awful uh, governments um, and, and particularly awful uh, home secretaries. Um, but the, the, and because, you know, in the UK, as I, as, as I mentioned earlier, we already do have two police authorities have effectively decriminalised drugs within their police authority areas. Um, and I think what we'll see in the next couple of years is that spreading. And, they're, they're, you know, next year there'll be four and next year there'll be ten and then there'll be fifth. And then it starts to become... Uh, once the evidence starts to accumulate, it starts to be acknowledged as best practice um, and it becomes irresistible for the government to, to, to move on it. And it's also worth remembering, something like decriminalisation, this is now advocated clearly and openly by the World Health Organisation, which is a big, lumbering, conservative, bureaucratic UN entity, is advocating openly um, for, uh, for, for, for decriminalisation, along with the UN Office on the High Commissioner of Human Rights, along with the UN Development Programme, along with UNAIDS, along with the British Medical Journal and the Lancet and the Royal Society for Public Health and the American uh, Federation of Public Health Officials. And, you know, numerous high... You know, or this isn't just, you know, us sitting up here going, yeah, it's a brilliant idea. This is these big um, uh, authoritative voices saying that this is an essential prerequisite for an effective public health response to, to drugs in society. Um, and so, it, it, you know, now it's more a case of the government's not arguing with us here. The government's arguing with the World Health Organization and, in fact, the entire UN architecture now. Um, and it starts, and, yeah, and itself, and it starts to become uh, irresistible. So I think that legalization is a much bigger challenge, certainly in the UK, uh, certainly beyond cannabis. But um, decriminalization it feels within reach and to a small extent it's already beginning to happen and the the, the mps act the, the the legal highs bill that was passed last year that bans everything um that even might get you high interestingly the, the drugs that are covered by it they're not criminalized for possession so interestingly I think, I think they are now aren't they no no some some of the the, the synthetic cannabinoids have been moved into the misuse of drugs act so yeah. get, this is the kind of boring stuff i was talking yeah. about techie stuff but the, the um but the the it, interesting the government acknowledged that possession of uh they didn't want to criminalize possession when they prohibited those drugs because they said well that would harm vulnerable populations and you know fuel fuel stigma and marginalization and you're going yes yes <laughs> and what about all those other drugs come on what are you doing so things are moving i think um, but I'm interested, um, Ollie, in the difference between what you saw in America to the culture that we got here. I mean, we're kind of almost geared up to address heroin and heroin-assisted treatment and safe consumption rates. We're, we're almost having that conversation before cannabis, whereas it's the complete opposite in America. Why is that? What do you think that... Can you put your finger on something that the culture of there compared to here? And the, and the... Um, the culture of cannabis is quite different just generally. Like... And I mean, like, culture as in arts. Do you know what I mean? Um, comedy, film, you know, it's very different. 
um, you know, when I said 420 to people in the UK, they didn't know what I was talking about, most people. But us in America, most people knew what 420 was. It's kind of part of mythical folklore of weed smoking, you know what I mean? Most of you have been to college, you knew what 420 was. But um, So that, that, that culture is different, for one. And the other one is, the, uh, Steve probably can probably correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think weed is a Class A uh, substance in America. Um, so... To them, that was like a really big jump. It's classed the same as cocaine and heroin, which obviously in this country, although we haven't got to the adult debate of legalization of it, um, we know it's kind of further down the list of, you know, drugs. And, and, and in many ways, it can help people coming out of the back of heroin addiction or anything else. You know, it can be people quite. People still a, go to prison for it. People still don't go to prison, although I'd argue that the police have a fairly kind of lax uh, attitude even before it was, you know... That, that Steve's laws. book says there's 11,000 people in prison now. In the UK? In the UK for... Not for cannabis possession, but... For growing I'd some cannabis, for something to do with cannabis? I think it's more than 11,000 people for drug offences generally. Okay, there's about, I mean, there's still about 27,000 people get a criminal record for possession. For possession, so it's, yeah. it's not, I mean, it's going down, but it's not, it's not nothing. Mm. 27,000, still, that's still 20,000 too many. It's a lot of people. There is a lot of people. I, I think uh, it's odd. I, America's not a place, but I think, and, and I, I say that because half the states in America are now legal in some way, whether that's medical or recreation, recreational. And many states are just medical at, at, at the moment. But um, but then they have this massive prison population of young, usually men, with drug convictions. So it's a really weird, you know, it, it, it's its own thing. It's probably why it's right, it's not the greatest model, but only because I don't think they're... they're system is the best. Not arguing that the UK system is the best either. But, you know what I mean, it's, it's quite odd in that way that you can pass a state law that's still federally illegal so um but yeah no i think the culture of of smoking although there's this horrible stigma um they seem to have grown out of that stigma quicker maybe i don't know i mean there still is that stigma don't get me wrong but um yeah perhaps they've grown out of it a little bit quicker they're a younger country Right. Um, Steve, how much longer have you got before you have to shoot? Because I know you've got your kids here. I'm basically thinking you want to man your stall over there so that people can go and buy your book. I'm, I'm sticking around. Cool. So there you so we go. Don't, there doesn't have to be a stampede Thank now. God for that. Right. And um, let's have a round of applause for these guys. So what did you think? I personally learned a lot from that. Um, that's why I like doing this podcast because no matter how much I think that I've got this uh, intellectual arrogance on drug policy I still learn something else especially when you're faced with people like Steve Rolls and Judith Yates from from their respective areas and Ollie as well that you know embedded within the Colorado culture you know that you, you learn so much from these people so thanks for them for joining us on that panel uh, it was a hot night that one and um, we all we all persevered through the uh, the sweaty conversation so to speak so anyway on that note, I'm going to do a quick few thank yous again. Thank you to Johnny Borrell for our theme music. Thank you for Nicky Elson, our producer, for doing this. Without him, it'd just be a, an hour of silence on iTunes. So thanks a lot for that, Nicky. Uh, who else do I need to thank? Oh, John and Jake. I've not thanked them yet. Thank you so much for what you do on the Distraction Pieces Network. If you look, if you follow the Distraction Pieces Network, social media on Facebook, on Twitter... That's them. Um, and they do so much for us in helping us promote this and getting the word out there. So thanks a lot, John and Jake. 
Um, and um, there's there's always people I forget, but don't forget to follow us on social media at ukleap.org. Um, all that kind of thing. Anyway, you've heard it all before. You don't need me to tell you this. You're probably not even listening by this stage anyway. Uh, statistically, you would have logged off. So anyway. On that um, optimistic note, thanks for joining us again. Make sure you keep logged in on all the stuff that's going on on Stop and Search and UK Leap and Transform and IDHDP and all of that. All the links will be on your cast app. So see you again soon. Bye. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay Behind your barricades Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.